Hello, it's about um, 11.30 or, or, or thereabouts, so uh, I thought we, uh, we might um, start. Uh, welcome to the uh, Syed Business School and to uh, this, the Nelson Mandela Lecture Theatre. My name is Richard Jarman and I'm the Head of Government Relations at um, Oxford and I'll be chairing this uh, discussion entitled uh, Political Oxford. Now, our two uh, panellists are on my, uh, on my right, uh, Tim Boswell, uh, now uh, Lord Boswell, former uh, Conservative uh, Member of Parliament for Daventry from 87 yes. till, yes. till last year. And uh, in uh, John Major's government, you were Minister for Education with responsibilities for universities and also a Minister at the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries oh, and Food, right. as was then. And then in opposition, uh, uh, spokesperson on higher education. Uh, but I know you, uh, I think, well from the Universities and Skills uh, Select uh, Committee. How are, you, how are you finding life in the House of Lords as com compared to the... House of Commons. Well, as somebody one memorably said, it is much better than the alternative. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I am still debating to myself whether it is totally different or entirely the same, and the answer is it's a bit of each. Um, we have seen signs of a more political tenor in the conduct of House of Lords business, which I think some of us who are not completely precious don't think is all wrong. Um, it is on the other hand, a little more restrained. And above all, I suppose it has a, an appetite and capacity for um, compromise, for moderation, in a way which the political arena of the Commons doesn't. The only other thing I'd just add, as a thought, is um, if you want to get something done, get yourself into the House of Lords. I reckon that I had 23 years in the lower house, and apart from my time as a minister, probably had about one thing changed in the constituency. That was a road sign. <laughs> and, um, and one thing changed substantially, and I forgot what that was, but I'll remember <laughs> later. <laughs> now, in their lordship's house, you know, if you sort of get good men and true or good women and true together and um, say, well, let me give you an example. Uh, the British Postal Museum is being overlooked in this legislation, you get hold of a minister who says, well, perhaps it is. We'd better put that right. And it's put right. So, you know, I've long suspected and now believe firmly that Badgett was right, but that on the whole, ours is the efficient end of the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I need Thank to say. Thank you. Uh, on, on my left is um, Sir David uh, Butler, Sophologist and Emeritus Fellow of uh, Nuffield College here in Oxford. Um, Sir David, as many of you will know, is a, a, an authority on um, post-war British elections. Uh, he's the author of the uh, Nuffield election uh, studies of each UK election since uh, 1945. And I think it's probably not unfair to say that you're uh, best known to the, uh, the wider uh, British public for your appearances on the BBC's uh, uh, election night coverages from about 1950 to 1979, was it? Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I may say, ask, say also uh, for your, your part in the creation of the, uh, of the swingometer. <laughs> yes, well, in talking about the swingometer, 
you're talking to obviously a relatively aged audience who might have remembered. I haven't done major television on elections uh, since 1979. Actually, the other day, when I got this ridiculous label, I had to go to Buckingham Palace. And uh, the Queen said to me, you invented that swingy thing, didn't you? <laughs> swingy thing. That swingy thing. And I, I didn't actually invent it. Another person invented it. I got landed with using it in the 1959 election. Uh, and, but I, so I answered discreetly, more or less. And she said, and it still works. <laughs> And it wasn't an occasion in the assembly line of Buckingham Palace to say, well, madam, we do actually have a three-party situation and the swingometer is not quite as simple as it was. So I, said, <laughs> so I just said more or less and passed on. <laughs> um, I should just explain that we had a third panellist who regrettably had to uh, withdraw this morning because uh, of, a, of a family uh, situation. Um, but uh, welcome to our two guests and uh, welcome to uh, you to our audience. Um, we shall be uh, encouraging audience uh, participation, so if you have a, a burning issue or a question uh, you'd like to put, um, I, I will be uh, inviting contributions um, as and when. Um, and now I'm, I'm told to tell you all to, to remind you all to switch off mobile phones and any other electronic, mechanical, portable device. Um, and also to let you know that this has been video recorded. So um, well, presumably if you don't want to be uh, uh, recorded, uh, uh, don't ask a question or, uh, or duck. Um, but the, uh, the, the, I think the, the, the idea for this uh, discussion arose from uh, this article, which was in uh, last year's... Um, Oxford Today, there's uh, David Cameron on the front. Uh, Prime Ministers, why has Oxford uh, produced uh, so... Uh, why has Oxford produced so uh, many? Um, I mean, I certainly, in my role with the university, I, I've noticed that since 2010, with the general election, we now have a, an Oxonian back on the throne, as it were, and it seems that half the Cabinet went to Oxford, and... The Labour leadership elections last year, three of the candidates were Oxonians, all of whom had read PPE, the other two coming from Cambridge. Um, so, David, what, what, are, what are the facts? I mean, is, is it right? Has Oxford oh, produced no, more politicians? Oxford has uh, uh, produced, uh, obviously, nearly twice as many prime ministers as Cambridge, and it has uh, produced about 40% uh, uh, more uh, MPs than, than, than Cambridge. And one says, why? I think I have just two words for that. Uh, geography and Eton. Uh, uh, the um, geography, Oxford is very much in the centre of England. And I've known, I once met a fire assessor who had equipment when a fire occurred anywhere in Britain. And he had, he had taken his car, he rushed off in heaven, and he got a house just outside Oxford so he could yeah. go instantly. And he just said this was the logical commercial answer to where he should locate himself. Uh, therefore, we, we, Oxford is only 80 miles uh, uh, from uh, Cambridge, right, as the crow flies, but it is much more on the main route to all sorts of other places and within range of other great houses and also closer, among other things, to Eton. And when we had a world where 
which was, uh, politics was very much dominated uh, by uh, Etonians. Uh, even, you know, in 1950, 25% of the Conservative MPs had been to Eton. It's now got down to about uh, uh, 4%. Uh, but it, it's uh, very different. But the, the, the dominant governing class w f found Oxford a, con a much more convenient place to send their sons. It was more on the same line. It was easier, I think, the distance from London is not much greater to Oxford or Cambridge, but the, the transport is easier for Oxford. So all these reasons made it like this. And it, it was... Um, I don't know, there's a great deal of history written about the appeal of Oxford and Cambridge, but Cambridge did somehow, through Newton and other things, get this scientific reputation. Mm. And Oxford had the humanities, and not a more than broader gauge version of learning about the ancient world than Cambridge had. And that was... It was, I mean, the, the idea of greats in the 19th century, you learnt about the language and literature of the ancient world, and then you were ready to go out and govern India or do anything else if you really understood that broad gauge thing. Whereas Cambridge, you tended to learn classical literature and language much more narrowly. So all these things pressed into it. And so Oxford fitted to that PPE after came in, in 19, formally in 19... Modern greats, yes. Modern yeah. greats, uh, PPE. Was, the idea of it was modern greats learning about the language and, uh, or the thought and uh, structure of the contemporary world. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't actually work. It was much too diverse a subject and sprawled all over the place. Nonetheless, Oxford tried to do this under Lord Lindsay and others from the 1920s onwards. The Social Studies faculty had its, uh, was set up in 1932. And there was PP as a much better place, if you were politically minded, much better subject to study than in Cambridge, where you only could study... E economics. The, econ the economists took over the subject and made it much less yes. suitable uh, for politics. And then I think the... I don't know enough about the Cambridge Union, but the Oxford Union did get a more dominant position in the life of the university than the Cambridge Union, and being president of the Oxford Union mattered more, and there was an assumption that anyone who became president of the Oxford Union could automatically yes. get, get a seat in one party or other <coughs> in Parliament. It, it just was that Oxford developed over time a much more uh, political atmosphere. Yeah, but Cambridge has a, a, a union as well. Is there something more peculiar of, about the Oxford Union, if that has a, well, if I that makes know, a contribution? I, 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 the media certainly have always taken up all my life. The, the, the stories, you get many more stories about the Oxford Union yes. than about the Cambridge Union. It just is more convenient for the journalists to come down Do you and think so, sensationalise and gossip about it. Cambridge is more out of the way. I think geography, I mean, if you really want yes. to answer to your question, geography, I think, does explain it far more than this. I think also, once you start, it goes on, the prestige of the Trinity Cambridge is as grand a college as Christchurch, but it doesn't, hasn't produced anything like the number of prime ministers mm. uh, that Christchurch has. Yes. Christchurch has been producing prime ministers since the... I don't try to, it's about, well, you give the fig figures in your circular, it's about uh, 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 Prime Minister's 26, 
26 to 15, or 27 if you count the Earl of Bath, who was uh, Prime Minister for two days. First Earl of Bath. Ah, I thought, I just thought the Marquis of Butte is extreme. The lovely thing, if you ask a pub question, uh, what British Prime Ministers who were, not, who were graduates didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge? The answer is two. One of the two is one anyone here could give, obviously, and that's Gordon Brown with his... The next one... Who's Edinburgh? No, the next one you'll have to go back to is... He was at Edinburgh. You have to go back to the Marquis of Butte, who went, got a degree in Leiden in the 1730s and became Prime Minister in the 1760s. But every other Prime Minister... Some came to Oxford from Scottish and other universities, yes. like Campbell Manham, yes. but they also got Oxford degree... Got Oxford yes. Or, or, I mean, I remember when I was a student here, it used to be said that... I mean, we can sort of move on now to sort of the, the post-war situation, if you like. Every Prime Minister after the Second World War, apart from Churchill, was an, went to Oxford or didn't go yes. to a university of, at all. Uh, Callaghan and... Um, John Major, um, I think that's now been broken out yeah. by, the, by, by Gordon Brown. Well, I, yes, I mean, just on the facts, I suppose if we're in the, um, noting a decent academic reserve, you'd have to say the sample numbers are relatively small or the populations are relatively small and the degree of confidence is difficult statistically to establish, certainly at the prime ministerial level, even arguably it's not the same job as it was in the 18th century, but we'll leave that to David. Um, but the figures, as you unpack them, become increasingly compelling. This isn't quite like boat races, where you know mm. one side's in. Oxford never won a boat race yeah. when I was a young person. Um, and now it's different, thank goodness. But the, the statistic which I came on in my bath last night, which compelled me most about this, is to say that next year I shall be 70, and for 50 years of my life, I shall have been with an Oxonian prime minister. I mean, it is very dominant, and no Cambridge Prime Minister during the whole of that period. Yes. So that's quite striking. And it's too much to be purely chance. Yeah. Um, I think David's absolutely right to identify geography. I was sort of brought up in the early days of political discourse to be told it was the train service, and it is to do with accessibility and agreeability of the surrounding hinterland and so forth. We're not very far from Chipping Norton to be more contemporary, shall we put it that way? <laughs> and um, I, I think also, in a sense, and I think David deployed this, an element of history. I mean, I am actually one of those generalists who did classical grapes. And PPE was becoming dominant, but they were, as it were, the terms of trade were changing during my time as an undergraduate in the 60s. But... Um, it had been the thing you train people in statecraft with. And uh, it does bring me on to another thought indirectly. Uh, we had along the way Cecil Rhodes and the Rhodes Scholars, and I think there has always been a strong international element in Oxford, what uh, one Oxonian once described as Oxford's proconsular mission. Uh, people have been around, and a lot of the dealings I've had as a politician have been people like the Institute of Migration or Refugees or whatever that are, or, or indeed this business school in a different way, show that Oxford is not only in the centre of England, but is actually in the centre of the, the um, developed world and is um, 
playing an important part all the time. So I would emphasize that point too. Um, remembering also that we don't have to go on about it. And I think Harold Macmillan was once quoted, maybe I, David may know the reference, when he was prime minister, and of course, um, as to the possibility, I think, of establishing the Robbins Commission as it became. And he's alluded to, to have said, well, no, there's no point in having a royal commission. It will only establish that um, one university is the best and upset all the others. <laughs> I would stress one other thing, going back much more historically. Um, elections having been my, my, uh, my subject, my, I have my walls really are the good reproductions of Hogarth's election, of the Oxfordshire election of 1754. And that the hustings for Oxford, the whole county of Oxford were actually set up in Broad Street just by the back door of Exeter. And the Tory voters were smuggled in through Exeter so to get the hustings out without getting involved in the crowds in that particularly uh, uh, splendid and corrupt election. And Oxford has gone on having interesting elections. Um, I was, uh, in 1880, Oxford was disfranchised, the city of Oxford, and a don had dropped a list of corrupt voters in the street, which was picked up by the other side, mm -hmm. and it, Oxford actually had no representative in Parliament from 1880 to 1885. At all. No, at all. At all. No, that was a punishment. Uh, for having an extremely corrupt uh, election, and well, quite a lot of corrupt elections. I mean, elections yeah. wonderfully purified. But in fact, the last case of a member of parliament being expelled from parliament for actual electoral corruption occurred just before I was born in 1924. It was Frank Gray, the member for Oxford. We haven't had any other case, a dubious one in New York, but we haven't had any other case that fits the bill uh, 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 since, since then. In our, uh, but Oxford, uh, th that, and the university, of course, had its members, and Gladstone sat for Oxford from 1847 until um, he got into the Rodian campaign and fell out with the, the church in, those, uh, in, uh, in the 1870s. And uh, he, he won another seat anyway, it didn't matter, but he was ousted from the university representation. Uh, in, in 1880. And then university representation almost got saved by a sort of revolution that happened in the 1930s when uh, A.P. Herbert was elected as against, it had been a solid, two, two, two Tories had sat there mm -hmm. solidly uh, without interruption since uh, 1880. Uh, A.P. Uh, Herbert, as a humorist, independent, not particularly left-wing, stood as an independent then, and then when the other conservative member died, Charles Oman in, uh, or Hugh, Hugh Cecil went to the upper house in 37, uh, he was immediately uh, succeeded by Sir Arthur Salter, who was an Oxford professor, and not, not, not mm -hmm. a strong, very vague, who was on the conservative side, but didn't fit into the conservative mould, and uh, produced a lovely paradox, it's a rather personal one, this, but in 1945, and the last election for the University of Oxford. My father managed to vote for four different parties in the election, quite legally. He voted Conservative in his local constituency of Epsom. He voted with a proxy for my brother, who was away in, in the Air Force in Asia. Uh, he voted Liberal. 
And as an Oxford University voter, he didn't approve of A.P. Herbert at all. He'd been his tutor at New, New College. And so he voted for G.D.H. Cole, the oh, Labour yeah. candidate, oh, yeah. and for Salter, a rather independent uh, pro-government person. It's a considerable achievement, right, <laughs> to vote <laughs> legally. For, it's not, not possible now um, yeah. in, in any way. Um, Oxford, uh, the city of Oxford, the, the place of Oxford, yeah. um, had uh, an important part pre-war with the um, Lindsay Quentin Hogg uh, by-election, how um, how influential was that uh, in in the life of the nation then? Well, it, it gave enormous it gave enormous comfort. I don't know if it made enormous difference. It was it was, it was in March uh, thirty eight, uh, March thirty nine. It actually or the end of the very end of thirty eight um, uh, after Munich. And the Liberal and Labour candidates were willing uh, to stand down, the Labour candidate being actually Patrick Gordon Walker, were willing to stand down in favour of A.D. Lindsay, uh, later Lord Lindsay of Berker, the Master of Balliol. And he stood there. They did a very good film about it, and quite a lot of people one knows yes, right now. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, Dennis Healy yes. and, uh, Lord Long uh, and Jenkins and Longford and so on. If you look at the big history, yes, yes yeah. Ted is a rebel of Oxford, uh, the, the big history of the university. You'll find quite a good passage just listing all the people there. And they did do a very good film about 10 years ago yes, I uh, about the, the, the by-election. No, it was, it, was a, it was a test case. It, Lindsay, um, Quintin Hogg won by 15,000 votes to 12,000. Um, quite, quite a comfortable yep. victory. I don't know, but I don't, I'm a little unhappy about Oxford, political Oxford. How political is it? I don't think it is. A lot, lots of things are astonishingly non-political. I've been 38 years on the governing body of Nuffield, and if I was trying to write a tell-all autobiography, I would have nothing, virtually speaking, nothing to say. The only time I remember the governing body getting thought about what you might consider political issues, one was about taking our bank account away from Barclays Bank because of apartheid. That was a great sort of issue in the mid-70s. And the second issue was whether we should still contribute bucus subscriptions for members. And each of those... were highly political. Highly political. We both... They were, they were very divided. I confess, I don't think I make myself some rather a goody, but in both one case, well, both cases, I think, I was in a, a minority. But when I saw the majority that was going to win, I switched my vote to the majority, oh. not, because I, not as a creep or a rat, or anyone would notice how I voted, but I just like, if we were going to decide it, the larger the majority we decided it by, the better. <laughs> but, but, but it is true. I, I, I happen to have had 38 years in a very politi political college in the sense of its subject matter, but really an astonishingly non-political, even not very, uh, non-political in university politics mm. terms. And I, I know of other colleges where there yes. have been bitter feuds and people who don't speak to each other and that sort of thing, but the picture of uh, Oxford as full of... Uh, extreme political squalls. C.P. Snow contributed, I mean, his Cambridge, but, yes. could, but the, the, the picture of uh, uh, quarrelling dons is not one that I have in 
my rather long No, just a couple of comments. Um, one was our chairman, in introducing me, didn't mention perhaps the most interesting thing about which I should be fairly quiet, I did in government, which was to be a government whip. And uh, this is another little, perhaps a post-thought, uh, question about the um, defining differences. I was talking to the most important person in the country uh, one evening at about, as you are if you're in the government whip's office, about quarter to two in the morning, I would say. And uh, the most important person, if you don't know, is the private secretary to the chief whip, otherwise known as the usual channels, otherwise <laughs> known as Murdo. And there'd only been four since 1919. Sorry, that's the vignette in pursuit. And he, noting the fact that I had succeeded another new college man as higher education minister, was sort of talking about the difference between Oxford and Cambridge. And I said, well, it's, you know, more subtle and nuanced than the other lot. And that's where we settled on. But I need to tell you a story which comes back, I think, perhaps to, and perhaps slightly scores for Cambridge. Um, before that, I was a special advisor. Interestingly, because as I said, populations change over time. I wasn't meant to be the media guru when I was a special advisor. I was actually meant to give advice, mm -hmm. but straight. This is in the 80s. We happened to be, uh, as it happened in agriculture, because that's an area I have some expertise in. Um, we had a Cambridge permanent secretary, who I may say is still a good friend of mine. And there was some government contract at issue. And there were four contenders, two ancient universities and two others whose names escaped me. Uh, but um, the news came through of the university's decision not to award an honorary degree to Margaret Thatcher, mm -hmm. who was then prime minister. Yeah. Yes, 1983, 84, somewhere there, 84. And all I remember was at morning prayers, which are the um, interministerial with senior officials meeting. 9am, the permanent secretary got up with a, an ill-suppressed giggle and said, I think after yesterday we can probably exclude Oxford from that contract. <laughs> That's point one. But point two is nobody whatever dissented. So actually Oxford is a lot safer if it keeps out of politics. And on the whole, you leave it to us and we're pretty manic about it. And I think David's account is probably right. Party politics is not the central theme here. You, you mentioned the Thatcher thing, which Ooh. I was going to mention as a, a, a really political thing, where I myself felt those, I was actually out of the country during while it was going on, but I communicated about it. I felt strongly, not that I was a conservative in any yeah. way, or approved of, uh, uh, approved of what Mrs. Thatcher had done educationally, but I was oh. absolutely oh. clear that it was wrong to vote against her uh, uh, being given on a degree, because her achievement coming where she, from where she had to yes, be the first yeah. woman prime minister was something and that... The did, it, and the first scientist. And it, it, yeah. it, it, it did honour to the university to give her a degree, however yes. much yes. one disapproved of her. Matthew Paris uh, wrote in the, uh, in the Times newspaper a few years ago that uh, Oxford ought to um, <clears throat> write that wrong. I understand that Oxford, before then, would always give an honorary degree yes. to a, a serving Oxonian prime minister. But I think that I, w I, w I wouldn't recommend it being raised again as an issue. It would be quite yeah. a meaningless thing to uh, uh, spend I think it would time be energy, and there would be people who would uh, make a political issue of it. It's too like, I think at the time I commented with Talleyrand, it was more than a crime, it was a blunder. And as I think yeah. I suggest, but for God's sake, leave it alone now. I think. We, we, we have got a question at the back, but just, be, yeah. just before we do go to the question, if I may, um, you, you raised uh, Mrs. Thatcher. 
Um, is, is there an Oxford story in terms of the emergence of women in politics? I mean, if you think of the big heavyweight politicians of the 20th century, um, 21st century, um, I mean, all of them Barbara. that I can think of were Oxonians, which is Thatcher, Barbara Castle, Shirley Williams. Shirley Williams. I mean, uh, who were uh, the great Cambridge women uh, politicians? Oh, Mrs. Gandhi. Was she, Gandhi? she was at Somerville. Well, she was Somerville. And, and, and internationally, too. Yeah. Benazir yeah. Bhutto, Bhutto yeah, Benazir, LMH. Uh, today, Anton Sushi from uh, St. Hughes. I mean, it's the. Mm. Maybe just. Oxford awarded degrees to women significantly earlier than Cambridge, didn't it? Yes, for, formally. I mean, Cambridge didn't do, do it till uh, some 47, sense, it? 47, and Oxford did it in the 1920s. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, if we, we've got um, a question at the back. If you could just wait until the... Just, just here at the back, carefully. If you could just wait until the microphone comes to you, because it's been... You don't need a Right. Oh, no, no, you, you did because it's... No, it's been... <laughs> I can hear you loud and clear. It's just that it's been recorded and unfortunately it won't be uh, picked up. No, but the interesting thing about Margaret Thatcher was she may have been turned down by Oxford, but when that last pedestal in the lobby of the House of Commons came free, who did they put on it? Yes. Margaret Thatcher. She may, as Napoleon have said, was a grocer, but she was a pretty competent grocer. Um, I thought, does anybody else have any questions just um, while we go? I'm going to look at the, the sort of the effect of Oxford producing all these politicians. But does anybody have a, a comment on why it might be that uh, just the gentleman here and then the, the lady at the, the front, if you could wait for the microphone. Could you just say who you are? And I think because it's the alumni weekend, if you are an old member, if you could say which college. Yes, Jim Rathman, Exeter College. Uh, just a question, really. What's your analysis as to how Christchurch has produced as many prime ministers as the rest of the colleges put together? 12 out of 26, I believe. Uh, well, 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 the question was, why has um, Christchurch produced more uh, prime ministers than all the colleges together? I think you well, touched well, on it earlier. It, but I, well, I think there are two of these. One, uh, I haven't got the statistics of the proportion of uh, prime ministers who were also Eton uh, 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 and Christchurch, and there has been an Eton-Christchurch link and a very disproportionate number of Etonians uh, have gone to, to Christchurch. Uh, I think that's uh, uh, one, one uh, ma ma major reason. Uh, Tim? Well, just to come back, um, something I might have said earlier, I think there's a concept buzzing around about clusters, to use Michael Porter yeah. from Harvard's phrase. You know, you, you like firms yeah. Yeah. join and go to Cambridge Science Park, wherever yeah. it is and politicians sort of cluster around, it becomes the habit. Um, you can do that by analogy with the other place, because I had one daughter there and one here, and the Cambridge daughter both was an officer of Cambridge University Conservatives and has done some work on the history of that. And if you just take the Conservative Party in Cambridge, you have these strange clusters in the 60s where they were um, Lamont, Gummer, Howard, yes, and then you had another, yeah. and then a later one in the, in the early 80s or late 70s, and there were sort of habits which were growing of people yes. who did things together. But, I mean, I'm sure David, with his historical perspective, is right. It was sort of Eton progressing through Christchurch to political office. Probably in my case as a new college person, Winchester progressing to new college and going into public service yeah. in a slightly less yeah. political way than, um, than the House would have done. Would you like to come back on that or...? No, just and, and then the lady here, just at the front, if you could just uh, wait for me. Yeah. 
Uh, yes, okay. Uh, just wait for. If you could just say who you yeah. are with. Caroline. Linda Somerville. Um, two things. When um, Somerville was presented with a sculpture, bust of Mrs. Thatcher, bust by Oscar Nemen, the great sculptor, they didn't dare pull it on public display. So it was hidden away in the governor's committee room because Somerville undergraduates might have taken advantage of colouring it or something. Another election that I seem to remember from the middle 60s was Evan Luard. And as I recall, because the American chap I was going out with at the time had been very active politically in America and so had a lot of the others, they'd been very active in the yeah. 62 election, they organised for Evan and I think he was elected, wasn't he? Yes. Evan Lewis was elected oh, in 66, the first, then Monty yeah. Woodhouse won the seat back in 70. But that's it. But, I mean, Le Luard was the first or a, a rare Labour politician? He was, the first, he was the first Labour member for Oxford. Um, <laughs> Frank Pakenham came quite close to yeah. uh, uh, Quinton Hogg in 1945. Yeah. But has uh, anyone ever looked into the role of the American students in that election? It would be quite interesting. I don't know. I'm not, obviously, people do, did wear as a, 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 a sort of medal that they had been on the Selma March yeah. or something of that sort. Yeah. I understand there's a question over this side, is there? Yeah. Uh, oh, the, 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 the lady just at the halfway up. Could you say who you are and which college? Veronica Lowe, St Hughes. Hello. It's really a slightly different question mm. and it's a request for information. Would you know how many Lords Chancellor have been Oxford men? Uh, um, the chance, uh, Lord Chancellor. How, how many Lord Chancellors have been oh, Oxonians? Uh, I'm just trying to think of that. Uh, we've had Scotsmen. Uh, 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 Sorry, I'm a lawyer, so it's a lawyer's. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, Quint Quinton Hogg. Yep. Is, is the most recent Oxonian chancellor, Lord Chancellor, I think, and he had he kept the job for quite a long time. Yeah, uh, and we had a Russian Scottish, yes, who presumably would have yes. met, who may. Have we, been we, we, no, we had, we had two, two, two Scots, yes. So, so, but no, yes. no, I don't think. Uh, no. I, I don't know. I think the, uh, if you trace lawyers, I think Oxford probably have. Less of an advantage. By the way, I did think of one yes. bit of Oxford politics, Oxford politics, which might amuse you. In the late 1950s, there was a proposal, which everyone now knows is very ill judged, but not enough people, it was very good, that the high was being wrecked by buses and traffic, and the bypasses were not adequate at all. And there was a suggestion of a road across Christchurch Meadows. Yes. And it, an odd thing that it, it went absolutely to the top, to cabinet. And there were detailed stories, the cabinet votes were not public, uh, of how uh, pe people worked strictly on their colleges. I mean, there mm. were the, the people who had been educated in, in the high, in uh, Queen's or Uni, mm. uh, or Bursnos, yes. voted one way, and people who had been Meadows colleges voted another. <laughs> well, I, I have a, a, a small and I hope honourable part in that little campaign, because um, uh, from a suitably neutral college, new college where probably allowing for advancing years and deafness, any road would have been inaudible, um, were seen as suitably neutral. And I actually gave evidence as an undergraduate on behalf of the university and the Oxford High um, and the uh, Meadow Road controversy. 
But the point which in a way exemplifies something I said earlier about internationalism that most sticks in my mind was the cartoon I think in The Guardian and you will appreciate the context was not then entirely oil wealth um, as here but uh, there was a picture of a palm tree and two shakes unsheltering under the palm tree one saying to the other I hear they're planning to build a road through the meadow <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any other questions? The, 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 the lady, just if you could just say who you are and which uh, yeah. college. If uh, It's the other side of you. Okay. <laughs> um, LMH, um, my name is Jane Reid. Um, it, it, it strikes me in all this, first of all, has there ever been a Labour Prime Minister or a senior minister who was Christchurch and Oxford? Eton and Christchurch, I mean. Um, and going on from that, it all seems incredibly class-bound. And what does the Oxford political department do um, to kind of keep all this very class-bound stuff um, going? Why are we so class-bound that we always take our prime ministers from Eton and, Eton and Christchurch? I mean, I'm just, is, I mean is, is that the case in more recent history? I'm talking about the past 20, 30 years. I mean, certainly, I mean, Edward Heath, Wilson, Mrs Thatcher... Would Eaton and Christchurch. E Eaton and Christchurch. And what is it about Eaton that makes people think they are destined to be? Does anyone have, have a view on, 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 on uh, Eaton's contribution to public? Mostly, they, you have to be pretty rich to go to, come from a rich family to go to Eaton. Some, a certain number, get scholarship, go to college at Eaton, and don't have to be rich. But uh, on the whole, the people we're thinking about are people with aristocratic or wealthy connections who do have the sense of being natural rulers. I think it's a perfectly yes. accepted thing that you'll find absolutely permeating uh, literature and uh, Trollope's novels and so on. You, it, it, you can't not think that it was there. One can't wish it away. Uh, on the whole, the statistics uh, of the proportion of people from uh, uh, provincial universities has transformed in the years I've been recording that since the 1950s. Uh, the proportion of graduates has stayed relatively so. One actual little dynasty, when Tim and I are both New College people, my father was a New College Don, um, I, uh, that in the 1960s I organised a new very close New College friend of mine, uh, Tony Benn, to come and give a talk uh, in the warden's lodgings on the peerage case when he was repudiating uh, his peerage. And I remember Warden Hayter introducing him, saying, he is one of the new college men who has made the Labour Party what it is today. Because the dominant figures of the Labour Party then were Gates School, yep. yes. and Crossman, and Douglas Jay, and Younger. I'm about that. And they were all of them Wickmists, except for Tony Benn. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Can I perhaps just say, I'm, I'm not an Etonian, but it is interesting to see, I think it is a very good school, and that probably brings people out. But as David has said, there is a sort of predictive nature. Mm. People who are influential and powerful send their, perhaps send their son to Eton and then expect them to go on and run the country. There's a phrase, and I cannot remember where it came from, who, who last used it, effortless superiority, which resonates. But in fact, uh, the interesting thing is how Oxford has maintained its sort of hegemony, if you like, 
in a very different context and with often different players. I mean, this is the first old Etonian we've had as a Prime Minister for since, 50 years, uh, nearly. Since Harold Macmillan, so it's 40 yeah. years at least. Um, and yet, and Oxford, as we tend to forget, is, is a major industrial city, which Cambridge mm. has not been, but, and that has influenced things, including political support. But despite all that, and you know, when you have public school people like, um, sorry, pri uh, grammar school people like Ted Heath, they come forward, and so the, in a way, the dominance is, or the hegemony has been maintained in a very different social context. And for the reasons I was mentioning, lots of what goes on at Oxford is, if one wants to use a rather pert reference, more directly socially relevant than some of the associations with Cambridge or elsewhere, I think. There's also the element of patronage. When uh, Baldwin recorded that when he became Prime Minister in 1923, there had only been four Horovians in the previous cabinet, mm. and he was determined to have five Horovians. But that's not the only one. The much more surprising one is that when Attlee became Prime Minister in 1945, he asked the just to check out on how many people had been to Halebrook. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Chris Mayhew and one, one other person got office in that way. And I think that there is the patronage, I'm certainly sure the Eaton Network patronage did further people's careers and make them more, more, more likely to get to senior office. Mm. There's also the jibe, which I think applied to Margaret Thatcher's comment, that it was not so much now a matter of old Etonians as old Estonians, yeah. implying a number of people, often from a Jewish background, who had come from mm. Central and Eastern Europe and were mm. extremely competent um, yeah. and valuable emigres into this country, Leon Britton, Nigel Lawson yep. and others. Yeah. Tim, what, well, we're, we're on this point about um, uh, Mr. Thatcher and the Conservative Party. Well, the Conservative Party. How would you characterise the Conservative, the modern Conservative Party's relationship with Oxford? Say for Mrs. Thatcher. Alone. Well, I think that you have to take that at two or three levels. Um, the first one, and if I'm honest, I think politicians, once they're engaged in the business of Westminster unless they are exceptional or have an academic hinterland, probably don't bother very much. Um, sorry if that's bad news. No. I think it's probably a good thing. Don't bother with... Very much with Oxford. What's that uh, yeah. you know, And actually, you, know, you meet somebody face to face and you won't have known everybody from here, although it's interesting, just a little side note to the Wickhamist domination in New College. Gordon Wasserman, who was then married to one of Hugh Gateskill's daughters, was a junior fellow um, in my time and turns up, and I hadn't seen him for 40 plus years, 50 years nearly, as a, a member of the House of Lords in the Conservative whip uh, about last year. So you do get some extraordinary sort of long run effects. Mm. Now, to come to what happens, um, one, I don't think we collectively think about it all the time. If there is a tantrum like the Margaret Thatcher honorary degree, that will upset people. Uh, Laura Spence is a co-celebre we haven't talked about in terms, obviously, yes, I, 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 I engaged to people. To Stuart, if it, if it. Um, and uh, we don't think about it a lot. Um, if you've been university minister, you probably think about it a bit more, and you look at the relative offer from somewhere like here shall we say, compared with the post-92 universities, which I do know well as a minister and indeed as a governor of two of them, and uh, they have their own positions. So you, 
if you're engaged in that world, you're thinking about the positioning um, between the types of institution and how they should um, run themselves. But I don't think um, you, you bother all the time um, unless something crops up. Uh, I mean, in a way, people do still graduate and go, and then they may come back. And, of course, one of the elements of this, which uh, I'm in exactly the same position as all of you. I mean, you come back as somebody who doesn't spend their life around this university, uh, but as an alumnus, now with the university very anxious to maintain its links and its, mm. its financial link mm. and its contacts and occasionally its influence. There's one point that hasn't been made, and that is, which is in a way partly the travel uh, uh, geography point, but it is very easy to get people to come to Oxford. Yep. I have uh, gave up last year, but I had for 53 years run a seminar called Oxford Government and Politics yeah. Seminar, and uh, it then turned into media and politics rather more thin. But I virtually never was turned down by a politician. I would invite them to come and dine, and then, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the, the magnetism works as a, I think it, not, it didn't work near so well at Cambridge, but also, of course, Cambridge did neglect politics. My wife became a professor at Cambridge in 1986, and I went over and, uh, a, couple of, uh, and a couple of nights each week to stay in Cambridge. And I taught at Cambridge a bit because there was nobody else teaching British politics. They had the professor of politics was a 19th, uh, 19th century historian and wasn't interested in the, to the actual pragmatic business of politics as I was. And so I gave three or four courses when I was there. It's changed quite a lot because there are many fewer people really teaching British government here in Oxford now yes. than where and interested in it. And there are actually rather more now in Cambridge than there used to be. Right? I don't think it's okay. equalised, but the, the balance mm. is not the ridiculous balance. When in the 60s I was asked to come over and give a course of lectures in Cambridge uh, on British government to the economics sub-faculty because they'd got no one in Cambridge uh, really and suited to do that. If I can just interpose back, I think, from that lady's question earlier about the role of lawyers, I suspect that Cambridge, and I have a daughter is a Cambridge lawyer, has rather, if not established a niche for itself, has been quite strong there. And given the influence of law through judicial review, for example, on the business of government now, it may be that's been a kind of backdoor entree for the Cambridge tradition. I mean, my daughter's supervisor, it happened, was one of those who sued HMG on the constitutional issue of membership of the European Union, which I didn't share with him, but that's just, you know, a, a different perspective. I mean... Uh, I'll come to you just after uh, much better. Tim, um, I hope you don't mind me asking this, but no. uh, do, do you think um, the current Prime Minister, do you think he might be a little uh, embarrassed about his time at Oxford, given the... Um, well, you mean the, the Bullingdon? The photograph yeah. that uh, yeah. is not mentioned. Um, I should not be at all surprised. Um, but then I suppose the right way to deal with it, which is the way he's dealt with it, is to say, well, we all do some slightly questionable things in our youth. Well, exactly. And, and I suspect um, the interesting case, and people are all growing up, is you know, if people carry on doing slightly suspicious things later on, or very suspicious things, um, 
which even happens occasionally to some of my colleagues, evidently. And um, <laughs> you are actually in the presence of a saint. I can't imagine how I got there. <laughs> but uh, being an ex-whip, my lines of defence are pretty secure. Um, we have so a question just at, just at the front. Thank you. Two reminiscences. One, a very senior current member of the Commons. I remember smashed all the windows in Peck uh, yeah. when he was a member of the Bullingdon yeah. Club. I'll be seeing him this weekend. I might remind him about that. Yeah. Um, secondly, the, the connection with uh, Hugh Gateskill. I was up with both of his daughters, Julia and Cressida. Yes. And if you looked up to their rooms late at night and saw the light was on, the likelihood was that their father was there. He would drive down after the commons had risen to see his daughters and tell them That's what lovely. had happened in Parliament mm. that day. Just, uh, we have uh, a question of the gentleman at the back who asked the question earlier. And sorry, if you could just wait for the microphone so we can make sure it's recorded. I, I, I don't need it. Uh, interesting <laughs> enough, when I was an undergraduate, <laughs> when I was an undergraduate, there were more dining clubs than there were undergraduates. And it was not difficult to join one. And to, you know, all this stuff about the Bullingdon. I mean, there were a bunch of pompous asses who ha happened to have enough money to run a pack of hounds. They were a joke. I was at Worcester in 1956 to 1959. I mean, they were a joke. We used to laugh about them. Um, any other points just on this? But we, 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 will, we will move on. Um, just, just down here, the gentleman here. Uh, Howard Alcock. Um, that leads on to the point I want to, to raise with our panellists, and that is whether how important the political clubs are, were or are. Um, I was active in the Labour Club in the 1960s uh, when we had an, an internecine struggle between the socialist group of the left and the social democrat group on the, on the moderate side. Now, um, all this went on very vigorously, and I can't help reflecting that it was mirrored in what happened in 1981 when the SDP split from the Labour Party, and I can tell you that certain of my Labour Club friends were involved in that episode. And I wonder whether that indicates some sort of importance for the student pre uh, precedence for what happened then. One was made very conscious of the Oxford undergraduate party political clubs um, when they had their rows. Um, a lot of the rows were in the Conservatives when somebody stole votes. And yes. then other, other people did, but the Conservatives were more unscrupulous or more often had really publicised rows about uh, vote fixing occasionally in the, in the Oxford Union, but of, also within uh, uh, the Conservative group. But there were also, when I was an undergraduate just after the war, uh, I joined all three political clubs. And the Labour Club was t torn absolutely apart by the, uh, co the communists or the uh, Marxists there, who was affiliation to the International Union of Students, which was obviously a totally Soviet-run thing, was uh, uh, whether they should disaffiliate. And the communists were a minority, but they knew how to... I watched how they fixed meetings and delayed the votes until a normal sense of people had gone back to write their essays. And uh, it, was, it was very active. But then it got very exciting at the time of Suez. I mean, I think there are these three phases. I think with the immediate post-war one, which was really pretty political, 
there was a lot of really vigorous politics among in the undergraduate groups. Then there was the, the time of series before and after, and that the, commun that the communists more or less dissolved and broke up, and, uh, uh, and the new left sort of got going in its own way. And then, of course, there was the uh, t time of the troubles in 1968 which were occupations yes. of Bodleian and so on. And there were periods when suddenly it all got very active. But the actual vital membership of the undergraduate clubs has gone up and down, but I believe is pretty fair well down mm. at the moment. Yes. I, I, I mean, just to comment, I think in fairness to the individual involved, I'll disguise his name and call him Hazelry, who was an undergraduate in my time. And as it happened, active in the Labour club, though... I think this is entirely unisex between the different political clubs, was known to all and sundry as Henry Election Rig. Um, <laughs> and that was his job. And indeed, you could speculate and say, if you believe that Oxford, and if I were shooting a line, I would say Oxford was a great vocational university, and PPE was, um, as its former editor once mm. said, um, the vocational training you require in order to write leaders on the Times higher. Whatever you want to say about that. Learning how to rig elections... Um, or even how to conduct them legally, is quite an important part of the show. So, I mean, don't un underestimate the ability to um, apply these things later on. And I was at a whip at the time of the um, uh, Margaret Thatcher's deposition. It became rather exciting, and this is an anecdote which has no merit, except I enjoy it. I actually needed to leave the whip's office trying to avoid um, journalists at a point of some strain. And like Fado, I exited via the drinks cabinet. I didn't, actually, but I did. The door did not open, and I left by the conventional means. So there's that bit of it. I actually think in terms of subsequently, other than the training element, it makes, cuts very little ice in the political world subsequently, and people, you know, confounded their differences. And as you rightly say, <coughs> have been members of more than one, and I'm, I'm sure I was a member of most of them. Yeah. Uh, where they can occasionally be of interest to the journos, we haven't talked much about the media here in mm. relation to modern politics, is, of course, it's great if they can find out that I was a member of CND in 1962 or something, uh, because it's then used as... And, of course, once it's on the net, it's there, uh, because it then becomes part of people's CV and a stick to beat them with in, in mature politics. But um, I think they come and go, in my sense, mm. from outside, is they rather under a cloud at the moment. Or. And we've got about um, a further 10 or 15 minutes. I was wondering whether we could uh, just bring the um, uh, conversation to a point that I, I, I was, I'm, I'm keen to, to ask the question. Um, why is it that... Uh, I mean, you, David Cameron earlier this year made the comment about... the incorrect comment uh, about the one black Caribbean student at Oxford... Mm. Um, a few years ago, and he wasn't an Oxonian, uh, Gordon Brown and the sort of Laura Spence affair. What, why is it that um, politicians seem to are, are are, have a concern about social mobility and link this to Oxford? Is, is that a, a fair comment? I think it is. Um, and number one, of course, when you take up those debates, you see how Oxford even if not self-chosen, operates as the prism for this piece of debate. I mean, it, it's not a debate you have about, shall we say, Hull or Edinburgh or anywhere else. Yes. Um, and this is part, of, perhaps, of this almost contingent role of political leadership which has been adopted here. Secondly, I think if you're in a position of 
power or influence and you have a senior position in government, whether you articulate it or not, you are interested in the route by which you achieve that. You may even be questioning yourself as to whether there have been legs up on the way. I mean, the issue of interns mm. is now... Yes, quite. ...which have helped you to do what you might not otherwise have been able to do on your own merits. And I think across the piece, there is a common interest in social mobility and how that may be affected. Now, in terms of the university sector as a whole, um, one sees remarkable changes in social mobility. Um, for example, the participation of women, ethnic minorities, and so forth. But these tend to um, still, and it's no fault of this university or Cambridge, um, tend to separate out later on. And I mean, David Cameron was not strictly accurate about the one Caribbean, but he was making a serious point that the, perhaps I'm, I'm now saying ex post, but the kind of people who were rioting the other day, even if they had the intellectual ability, would not think themselves appropriate to come here. I think that's just a wider dialogue that we're going to have to continue to rehearse. But the answer to it is, um, is not actually, in my view, to ruin Oxford. It's to make Oxford more accessible. Arguably, a political point, and I'll then stop, partly because of the grammar system, it was arguably more socially mobile and more inclusive in my undergraduate days than it is now, because a lot of people have been filtered out of coming here through academic achievement. I mean, that's a bit of a saloon bar comment. One of my, um, one of my colleagues um, is a, a studied at Yale and then did her postgraduate at, uh, degree at Oxford. Um, she made the comment, whether this is true or not, that US politicians don't give their top universities, Harvard, Yale, yeah. MIT, the same sort of negative scrutiny that Oxford and Cambridge get from our politicians. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I mean, I think we have a national issue, and I, I'm perhaps going to, I mean, I, I'm not sure I can do it comparatively, except I remember mm. having a week at the Kennedy School of Government, and I mean, as a visiting Brit, and about five mm. of us, and we all thought that was a serious place, and we were, you know, respected it, mm. and clearly American politicians do. I think we actually have an issue about institutions in this country, and whether it's the law, um, ancient universities or otherwise, and people want to be um, critical of them, want to um, pick holes in them, and that is part of the apparatus of being, I think, aware, responsive to those pressures, and to deal with them when it's necessary. And uh, is, is certainly, this, uh, I mean, the last time I was in this building was uh, in the connection with the University Select Committee in the Commons, and we were exactly unpicking this issue about social mobility I and how people mm. approached Oxbridge entry, and uh, yeah. I thought we had a pretty good account of this university. Does, um, does David, do you have a comment? Well, I, I don't know. I'm influenced by the fact I spent uh, yesterday uh, entertaining two 17-year-old grandsons, cousins of each other. Uh, each went to about five different colleges. Where the they open had, day, yes. And they had their yeah. open day yesterday. Uh, both of them are actually at uh, uh, comprehensive uh, yeah. schools, and both of them are on the margin of the degrees. I was struck by the, the energy of it. They were the skill of Oxford, among other things, at recruiting people. This was, I, I don't think, 
the recruitment of what I little I know of it, and university, could reason could afford to do it yeah, as elaborately as this. And I suspect that my like my my daughters in law are probably pushy mothers in the sense of wanting, think, valuing uh, Oxford uh, possibly disproportionately. Yeah, I mean, just a, another little anecdote. Uh, the Cantabrian daughter, married to Cantabrian, has two daughters who don't live that far from this city. And at the age of four, the younger one was observed to go round and said very pointedly to her mother, an interesting question from Gladstone's day, and where is the university? <laughs> and there was a very clear inference, although it was not quite stated, that she thought it was an opportunity of getting one back at her parents by offering to come. <laughs> don't worry, but I mean, as long as she does it in competition with others, I don't. We have a question just here. Just before we ask a question, if it's okay, okay maybe this would be my, my penultimate question. Um, I, in my role for the university, usually um, old members say to me, shouldn't Oxford just break its links with the politicians and... And, and go private. I mean, the university is a private institution in receipt of public funds, but I often have that put to me. Do you, I mean, if we're talking about political Oxford in its widest context, do you think uh, Oxford ought to have a different relationship with, gov with government and sort of opt out and out mm. of the system? I think the trouble is that so much of the university is in, into research and the sciences, and they depend on government grants and relations with government. I think a UDI on the, from, the, from the national educational system would be, make it much harder to get the money for the things that make Oxford extremely... I mean, Oxford and Cambridge. Yes. There's been talk, all, all my life there's been talk of going independent and not, not being so much the creatures of the state. But all the sensible people I've met say it, it, it just, it's, it's just no more on than leaving hmm. the common market is yeah. on. I think my flippant answer would be to say that uh, if Oxford were to do that, it would, of course, then deprive them of the perennial debate about whether or not they should be doing it, which, yeah. <laughs> from which they derive more satisfaction. I can remember going to Nuffield, actually, for some seminar yeah. on the back of, I think, Neville Johnson's um, yeah. article in the Oxford magazine saying, we've had enough of this. Um, I often have to remind people that universities are autonomous institutions. They are private institutions, albeit for public purpose. And um, they are in receipt of state money. Now, to some extent, that is a, a transaction mm. which they take with their eyes open and for very good reasons, which David has given. I think there will be some change not uh, immediately presenting itself uh, in terms of the changed relationship with undergraduates. Uh, because they will be the financial paymasters, and yeah. people will have to give satisfaction. Um, my own view is that Oxford did suck with the, uh, the devil in the shape of the state from the time of the uh, university's grants committee, or whatever it was then called, in 1919. I mean, there's always been an understanding. You needed to dip into into the funds, the resources of government for major purposes. Um, but that relationship had become rather too close um, and it is now becoming rather more um, independent. But I think Oxford would be very ill-advised to take its toys away because it is part of the Constitution and as far as I'm concerned, long may it continue. Just have a question here. If anybody else has got a, a question, I think this would be our last tranche. Okay. 
As a scholarship girl myself, I had an 11 plus and then a counter major. I mean, I value enormously the fact that I had a world class and free education. Should Oxford not be doing more to reach out to inner city, uh, publicly educated children? I mean, thinking of the American um, Ivy League, I'd like to cite the example of the president's wife and brother-in-law at the present United States. Their parents, her, their father worked in the city sewer system. Mm. Their mother was a lowly secretary. Both Michelle Obama and her brother went to inner city schools in Chicago and they both ended up at Princeton. Shouldn't we be doing that? Okay. Do, could we perhaps take the other question? And there's another question over here. Is, am I right? Yes. Yes. We've just got another question over here. This is the gentleman. Uh. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, um, there was a lot of talk in the press during the Labour leadership, and then again when Mr Cameron talks about things like the broken society, that perhaps when so much of the ruling elite comes from Oxbridge, that they're out of touch with the, the issues that they're talking about and you know, don't, don't necessarily know about what really matters to, to working class people that they're serving in the country. Do you think that's a fair accusation? Okay. And then we'll have our final question here. Oh, I'll take two more, if I may. The lady here and the gentleman who's had his hand up all the time. This, the, so, so, sorry, the, the gentleman just down on the second row with the green tie on. Just behind you, sir, you just have a look. Great. Um, it's really a question about um, a programme which I think we were all very supportive of, yes, Minister, which is highly amusing, but it gave the impression that the permanent secretaries were very much biased towards Oxford, indeed their propensities came from Oxford. True or false? And then finally, and sorry for having to, to close this, but the, 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 that's it, the lady at the end. Uh, this is Sean Johnson, St Hilda's PPE. Uh, my my um, observation is that uh, this is the second time I've been to a lecture where a lot of questions and comments have been going on about access and broadening access. The Obama example, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think there's a kind of collective survivor guilt about uh, us at Oxford. We all feel very concerned about how we're going to broaden access in the future with the, with the fees increase. Uh, and I had been expecting some kind of suggestion from um, the the speakers, in either today and, uh, uh, and yesterday, that it's up to us to go out there uh, and do something in our own communities, talk to colleges of six forms and so on, and, and especially as I come from the north at the moment, and I live in the north, people who actually wouldn't dream of going to Oxford, who perhaps now is the opportunity yeah. to encourage them because there are going to be opportunities in terms of cash because Oxford's got to do that, otherwise it's going to lose it. Great. If I could just summarise those, if I, if I can, the, um, a question about widening participation and Oxford's um, role in that and also I think the impact of fees on, on the issue of, of widening access. Um, whether having an Oxbridge elite is, uh, means that we have a group of leaders out of touch with ordinary folk and whether civil servants from Oxford uh, seem to dominate uh, decisions in Whitehall. Do they, if you want to a, a attempt any of those? That's a feast. Um, I think there are two levels. One is what we might do as establishment figures, and secondly, how open we are to people who are not. Let me try and pack it like that. I mean, many of the conventional avenues of dominance have, I think, dissipated. 
perhaps not the political one, which is, in a way, the interesting aberration. But if you take, for example, promotion of the senior positions in the civil service, mm. I mean, Lord Crowham, later, previously Sir Douglas Allen, who's just died, was a um, grammar school boy who went right to the top. And I think that is much more characteristic now. I mean, I don't get the privilege of sitting in on the permanent secretary um, debates, but um, I'm sure they are cerebral without being partisan, if I can put it that way. And um, as long as, of course, you do realize, and it's certainly well understood in political circles, that yes, ministry is not a comedy, it's a training video. <laughs> um, now, more widely, there is still, and I think in a way you can say other elements have contributed to this, a, an, an identification of those who are in parliament and government with relatively privileged people. The bit that I added is, in fact, it's the decline of the representation of working class people in the Labour Party, which has as much skewed this debate as not. And, I mean, you get strange affinities and crossovers that... Um, mm. The tip of the, the break um, with the trade, the yes. trade unions not providing yes. and the I mean, uh, pool of... You know, candidates. one of my quite close friends in, in Parliament, in the other house, is an ex-communist, you know, who's quite prepared to call me his good friend on a platform in Wales, not in a political context, <laughs> but in an academic context. You can do that. Um, I think where the thing breaks down is either if the elite um, makes it impossible for people to access, and all the signs I've seen around Oxford are that that is a very strong negative. People don't want to close the drawbridge. The second and more subtle question is, you know, are people like that able to relate to ordinary people, and people in the inner cities in particular now? And I think that's almost neutral as to background. There are some people who have had all the advantages, for example, of an Oxbridge education, um, who think that is a passport to their own advancement. But I think for every one of those, there are two or three people who are prepared to go out and say, well, we've had a lot, and in one way or another, we're going to put it back. We won't necessarily make a fuss about it. And the only final point I'd make myself is, um, if anybody here does feel inclined to go out, it's not so much a matter of having a law of Spence moment. I think it's a matter of doing the grunt work, as the Americans would call it, in the secondary schools, uh, mentoring, encouraging, saying, you could do this. Mm. And you won't be stunned when you come here. And you can do all of that. And why shouldn't you? Mm. And that's, if you like, the Michelle Obama moment. Because mm. if we actually create a society where we don't have that expectation yeah. and opportunity for advancement, then we would be in trouble. But the fact is that power, is, politics is a bore and a very large number of people are not interested yeah, and don't want to go into it. If you are interested in politics, then you rise if you're first mildly able and secondly, if you're really energetic and don't mind making yeah. your home, everything, so going out to meetings yeah. and doing all these things. And, uh, that, and it, if you've got a little bit of money, it, it's easier uh, uh, to do that. And so I don't think one can dream of a world, an, an egalitarian world, in which power is not going to drift to the energetic. And it's, I think it may be drawn from a smaller group of people who, temperamentally, leaving out the class space, say, and the class thing is certainly there. Uh, you may have a small 10% uh, underclass. There are quite a lot of others the opportunities are there, and it may be that people look like elites. I know, remember noticing 
when I was an undergraduate, one could guess what school people had been at. But when I've dealt with graduate students, if I haven't actually seen a biog, I'm quite often absolutely astonished where they've come from. The able ones just have drifted up the top, they write good essays, and uh, there they are. It, 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 it's, I, I, I don't know, I, I, so much of what is said on the class thing is facile, but I'm afraid that is, there is definitely a, a great advantage. So how pleasant it is to have money, and how pleasant it is to have families who can connect. I just discovered, listening to my grandchildren yesterday talking, how they get resets, if you have, but you have to pay quite a lot of money to have yes, a reset, uh, an yes. exam, and uh, 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 they all yes. their friends had uh, got Ds when they should have got Bs, and their the, the parents were paying for the reset. Well, that, that, I, I don't know how you, whether you should, perhaps you shouldn't have to pay for the reset, for the reset or something. I did, it did seem, I, I was also shocked at the advantage mm. that still seemed to be in the system mm. for energetic parents uh, who have, had little money. Can I just add to that also the question of poverty of aspiration, which I think mm. was, um, was Nye Bevan's phrase. I mean, we just have to encourage people to realize they can do things. They're not going to be snubbed. They're not going to be put down. They're not going to be put into a difficult position. Um, and they can do it. And I mean, I think once you're in the game, if you want to call it that, or the process of politics, that's actually how you deal with people. But it's that necessary step that will take them through an effective ed school education to qualify them to come to a place like this and then go on, which is the much earlier and um, perhaps more influential mm. consideration we have to put right. Well... I think we should uh, end it there. Thank you very much to um, Tim Bellswell and also to Sir David Butler. Um, would you uh, join me in uh, thanking them for... <laughs> <laughs>